How do you want me to identify? Do you want me to identify who is is, is Phil? Phil? Why would we care? Why would anybody care? Yeah, I, well, you just said it. So I don't think you care. Yeah. So are you Phil Blank? Sure. Raconteur. Raconteur. Librarian. You used to be a librarian. Artist. Scant. Artiste. Musician. Yes, yes, Father. Yes, all that. Husband. Yes. If you didn't like it, you shouldn't have put a ring on it. <laughs> My favorite camera. That's right. Um, so I'm going to tell you the story that I was trying to tell you. So I had to teach this. Well, I didn't have to. It, but it wasn't a class I proposed. I was covering it. And it was um, about kind of the morality of Star Wars. And I like Star Wars as movies. I'm not invested in the Star Wars universe. I don't, I don't have any big thoughts in the Star Wars universe. But we're examining kind of like the moral questions of it. And I had, of course, all boys. It's all boys signed up for this class. Who, what girl wants to sign up for the morality of the Star Wars universe? No. Uh, and so we finally get to the, the first, the Star Wars A New Hope. And it's the scroll through where it says, um, like, the Empire has developed a Death Star. And so I paused it and I said, okay. Does anything seem wrong with that to you? Building a, a giant system that could destroy planets? And one kid raised his hand and he looked really, yeah, that's wrong. He's like, uh, the, um, what do they call the Star Destroyers? Can already strafe the surface until no one can live on it anymore. <laughs> so it's really a waste of an investment to build a Death Star when you can already strafe the surface and, and kill everybody. Is that wrong? Not wrong. And I said, well, okay, yeah, that's one viewpoint that I hadn't thought of, but is there anything else that seems wrong? And one kid gets really excited, he raises his hand, okay, yes. Uh, and he says, uh, well, it's a huge investment of tax dollars. Like, everyone's taxes would go up to finance the Death Star. And he said, but it would create jobs. Full employment, <laughs> Germany, 1935. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I was like horrified by this. I was horrified by this, but uh, this is, in reference to to another class we were just looking at, they were they were all in this class where they're creating alien civilizations, and all their alien civilizations were like genociding each other in, in there, where they're like, okay, uh, we do not like the Trade Commission, and so we are going to destroy your home planet, but it's okay because you are all a race of insectoids. Yeah, that's interesting. Why did they go to that? Exactly. That's my question. Yeah. So that turned into me giving them a 15-minute harangue on a, a vivid description of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the firebombing of Tokyo and saying, do you actually know what it looks like to, like, yeah. bomb something? It's a cliche. I don't know if it's true, but uh, several people have told me that this generation of kids is number, is more numb mm -hmm. about things. They don't get phased by huge things. There's mm -hmm. not an emotional... There's no all the humanity kind of reactions to stuff. They just well, because society it. itself is so fucked up that they, they are used to it? I, I don't know. It's a mystery to me. I know that you have a, you have a son. I have I, a son. I do. Do you let them watch movies that are a little bit above their age range? Yes. Totally. Everyone all the time. does. Yep. It's the, if it says, like, okay to watch when you're 13 mm -hmm. and you have a seven-year-old, you're like, man, it's probably fine. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of that going on. If you look at, I mean, I was... My son's in first grade. Yeah. I think I was still watching Sesame Street. Is that possible in first grade when Maybe, I came home? Yeah. It was the only thing that was on. It was the only thing that was on, for it sure. It was either that or Bugs Bunny. Yeah. And he's coming home and watching, you know, uh, Jurassic Park. Yeah. You know, that's crazy. Yeah. But they're not the first generation to be, to be exposed to insane stuff. Right. Um, well, yeah, I kind of I get uncomfortable doing this generation's like this. I know. This I know. Like this. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but that being said, especially if you work with children, you do see differences. Yeah. Um, I've heard, you know, what David was saying the other day, he thinks, you know, and I hate to blame things on video games, but maybe if you're playing video games, a lot of the resolution in those games or the solutions are kind of eradicating 
uh, a race, quote unquote, right. or a people, sure. yeah. um, which is kind of freaky to me. It was also kind of freaky that they're doing alien civilizations and all their planets only had one, again, air quotes, race. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's a long-standing science fiction trope, that one planet, one race. It's very weird. And Yeah, it's totally weird. I mean, even the idea of a race, we were talking about this before, like in the Hobbit universe, yeah. where's the half-elf, half-orcs? <laughs> Right. Like, you know, uh, and I think in, in that, if memory serves, like the one people that do have a cross racial love mm-hmm. affair, they end up dying tragically or something. Right, well, because the elf has to give up eternal life to marry right, a Right, right. So it's like, you know, those kind of things don't work. Um, uh, yeah. And for the a young boy, it's, it, it's very easy to understand the world racially. It gives them a handle on what is a total wild chaos of different varieties. Yeah. I think that's why it's appealing to libertarians because uh, yeah. in the young boy mindset. Yeah, just keep, you know, just keep it theoretical. Don't don't worry about reality. Uh, in theory, all that racial stuff works out perfectly. Well, I heard, oh, I can't remember his name. He, uh, he's a PhD in Southern California and he was talking about how, trying to explain like how science got racialized. And he's like, scientifically, the argument for race doesn't make sense. But once you have it makes sense in your brain, science starts falling in line to it. Sure. Like you start looking for it. And so when you're saying, well, we understand this genetic population to be that, you start not using the language of like kind of populations, but of does this mass up, match up to racial groups? Because that becomes the ideology. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the, the classic thing is that the race is biological, the way people use it. And there is no actual biological markers for it. Mm-hmm. However, ethnicity, which is probably what most people mean, mm-hmm is you know culture and some subjective racial markers right and those do mean things and the big question in southern culture and in other cultures is yeah. what is ethnicity how do we make sense of it right well how do we use it to make sense of our world if we don't have ethnicity then it seems we're all just thrown into a black hole of market forces and just capitalist dreck yeah that that's the default but if you lean on ethnicity as some sort of way to make sense of the world then you're in danger of getting all weird and and white yeah or, or race you know then the race stuff comes in then the well what am i and you know in this country people are white they're not german americans right yeah i think that's true so yeah oh the, we got started talking about that the thing i want to talk to you about um you're the first yankee to be on our show mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and right. we and i think we've thought that you should be the first yankee to be on our show all right all right <laughs> because you're in an interesting situation you are uh, a Yankee who both loves and has serious issues with the South, but also chose to live here. Yes, I hate both the South and the North. Uh-huh. I have loved the South in the past, although that is fading. <laughs> is this a, like a political thing? Is this a, a cultural thing? Is this something that's just happened to you? It's, been go- it's longer than the recent cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been going on a while. I mean, I also married into the South, mm-hmm. the deep South, yeah. I mean, rural Mississippi. Um, and yeah, it's it, everything that, that Yankees know about the South is completely utter bullshit. I mean, their fantasy of the South is, is completely wrong. At the same time, yeah, weird stuff happens in the South that, you know, like sometimes the stereotypes line up just right and it's totally terrifying. Um, yeah, where to start, how to get specific. Um, well, can I ask you this? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just curious. We, we talk about this all the time. So we, we are starting out with the basic assumption. We're begging the question that there is a South, right? And I don't know if I agree with that. 
Okay, We're just yeah. assuming it for the basis of this. But the, the kind of thing we keep finding out is that those borders extend and fluctuate a lot. So, you know, like southern Florida isn't really the south, right? right? right. Do you think so? No. And like once you get past Houston, Austin doesn't really feel like the south to right. me. Well, Sometimes a little mean. bit. But if you get out like hill country, it doesn't so much. It's the west, yeah. kind of. Uh, and then Ohio, uh, rural Ohio can feel very much like the South. Rural Illinois is very much like the South. So I'll tell you, I, here's my shtick on okay, that. That's what I want to hear. So I think the South is a place, but it's also a time. Mm-hmm. And this gets me in a little bit of trouble because a lot of times in academic circles, in well-meaning liberal academic mm-hmm. circles, they're trying oh, to say, oh, the, the new South, right. you know, and now has Cambodians in it or something. Right. That's <laughs> totally true. I'm, all, I'm, to- I'm totally okay. pro-Cambodian. Um, <laughs> But You're pro Khmer Rouge. What Cambodia. makes the South interesting is, and the culture of the South that sort of defined a way to be for so many people, is the confluence of pre-industrial traditions with industrial traditions. Mm-hmm. And those happened at a certain time. And that's where Elvis comes from. That's where Bill Monroe comes from. Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of the Southern ways of, of uh, figuring out how to be a modern person come from. So... That happened all over the world, but in America, it happened more in the South, and it happened in interesting ways more in the South because mm-hmm. you had more pre you had stronger pre-industrial traditions. Okay, like uh, such as agriculture. Mean, yeah, um, and so the negotiation there was more interesting. Bill Monroe plays in a modern way. He's got verses and choruses and right. harmonies, but he's also playing with a pre-industrial strength. He can scream the hell out of a, mm-hmm. of a lyric if he wants to. He's bashing the mandolin with a pick, mm-hmm. whereas up north they're playing very polite, you know, cocktail mm-hmm. jazz. Um, so I think that culture is what I think of as the South. Mm-hmm. And it will change through time, but only in how we reinterpret that and how we make mm-hmm. use of that. So right now the South, what it really is, is just a bunch of country clubbers mm-hmm. sitting in their air-conditioned cabs while Mexicans outside are doing all the work and then they're still trying to lean on that culture for you know because their great great granddaddy once had to eat a potato for lunch that wasn't cooked you know that becomes their identity but it's all bullshit now they're just as suburban as everybody else i mean they've been so for 15 20 years um uh you know that southern culture still is interesting to me it's you, you can listen to it and still hear the friction between those two huge anthropological forces yeah, well, so uh, you you are interested in bluegrass music and play bluegrass, bluegrass and all music. kinds of southern music. all kinds yes. of southern music. But uh, one of the things that's really interesting to me about bluegrass music is I think people sometimes think it's older than it is, kind of yeah, like reggae sure. music, sure. right? Uh, like reggae music is relatively recent. It yeah. seems older. I mean, I think ska comes before reggae, right? And it seems yeah. just like it's the other way around. But like uh, bluegrass music is similar in that it's a product and correct me if i'm wrong of people who have left the country exactly. and moved to the city yes. and are experiencing these this nostalgia for what the country was yes right? absolutely i mean it's an industrial music right. uh it's not for, you know people think of these people playing bluegrass on the farm mm-hmm. no they're playing it in the factories right uh, they're playing it in the textile mills um and all that nostalgia now that nostalgia is interesting because it actually predates bluegrass uh-huh. i mean you can listen to old-time music and it has a lot of nostalgia in it. Nostalgia seems to be a core part of the Southern thing. I think part of it has to do with the fact that even agriculture, you know, you have you have a plot of land and you have three sons. Uh-huh. Well, now everyone has one third of the land. They yeah. have three sons, right. and now it's too small to do anything with it. Right. So agriculture is constantly kicking people out of the old home place. Yeah. And 
No pun, pun intended. Yeah, I mean, literally, that's what all the, the uh, huge group, bunch of those songs are about is like, well, you can't stay here. You got to do something else. So right. it's either kick out the Indians or go to the factory. Right. Well, that's one way, like, the South often reminds me of rural Japan. So I don't know how much it was just the rural experience. Because, you know, over the last 40, 50 years, Japan has been rapidly, rapidly urbanizing. And so there's this kind of nostalgia for what what are kind of the reflection, the nostalgia for rural culture, not even necessarily what it really was as an experience. Like, that's what all the Miyazaki Hayao movies are and stuff. My Neighbor Totoro is clearly about a nostalgia for rural Japan that might or might not have existed. Now, I kind of feel it's that way when I listen to Bluegrass. Yeah, and here's where I differ from the well-meaning academics, is I like that nostalgia. Mm -hmm. I like the imagination of a romanticized past. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now in academic circles, or, you know, that's like verboten strictly is it yeah i mean anytime you try to vaguely talk about the past they'll just counter you with you know uh you're just essentializing it you're romanticizing it mm-hmm. uh you know it, it's very easy and fun to poke poke through all of that but i think people are have a legitimate nostalgia for a pre-industrial community mm-hmm. a lack of alienation mm-hmm. a lack of atomized commodities of consumption yeah. modernity kind of bullshit so um, that nostalgia is interesting to me and right now it's just being weaponized by the right and the left yeah. is just saying it's really fuck it move it. all yeah. just go to the city get yeah. a job and a, get an app to get, get a nostalgia an app, app and and that's just not a satisfactory answer no it isn't and I talk about that uh, both on this show and in, in life a lot is that the left okay, so I have lots of thoughts on this no, no, no. So the thing that bothers me politically with this is, one, I think there are, growing up and all through my life, I've known, like, great people with leftist values in the South, right? But as uh, a national kind of movement, both the Democratic Party and farther left ones devalue Southern voices all the time, all the time. And I think uh, it's greatly to the, to their... I mean, it's part of the decline of it is that you never can have these kind of stories and these storylines that bring in people who are alienated rural people and say what's happening to you is absolutely a feature of neoliberal capitalism. You can watch it happen to you. Like watch, uh, watch what happens when the country store turns into like a CVS across the street from the Walgreens. Yeah. Like how do you feel about that? You remember when your grandmother lived over there. You feel bad about that, right? But no one ever describes that change to him in – and mainstream democratic politics say that change is good. That change is good for you. You see how much better everything is now that you have um, four, four grocery stores and a shopping center? But it's not better. People feel and understand that it's not better for them. Yeah. I mean, there's really no room for their imagination. And so their imagination goes fucking toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, my whole thing is having seen life in rural Mississippi, I mean, it's it's communist. It's socialist. Mm-hmm. People are leaning on each other outside of a nuclear family mm-hmm. in a much stronger way. And that's why sometimes Yankees piss me off because they see the South as like this bastion of hyper-capitalism or something. Right. It's not. Now, the caveat to that is race. Yeah. Those borders stop real quick right. around race. And some Southerners will tell you they don't, but uh, let's face it, they do. Yeah. Um, and that's why the federal government had to come in, yeah. and that's why it all went to fucking hell. But... Um, the South has knows about solidarity. Yeah. The, I mean, that's why Trump has fucking ninety seven percent approval ratings. Where the hell he has? It's like they one person thinks it, the other person thinks it, mm-hmm. and they're good with that. They're not wrapped up in their hyper individualistic interpretations that have to be, you know, their unique brand or whatever. All that stuff is just allergic down here, and and 
rightfully so. But uh, the imagination of a better South, which is in some cases bullshit, and we, we could talk about that as well. Um, I think it reflects a world with less anxiety and less fear and also a more beautiful world. Uh-huh. I mean, I look at painting uh, photos of April's poor as dirt hill country Mississippi town uh-huh. in the 1930s. They had beautiful homes, uh-huh. beautiful hand-built homes. You go there now and they're just like these disgusting shacks. I mean, it takes a toll on you after a while. Yeah, well, that's, you know, in New Orleans as well, like I live a few bucks up from the Irish Channel and the Irish Channel where houses are going for like a million dollars now, which is ridiculous, whereas the working class neighborhoods where people work the docks, but they were getting all this really quality wood and craftsmanship in it. And so they're beautiful homes. They're made from cypress that like floated down the river. They cut out yeah. of the swamp and they're uh, crafted by like master craftsmen who that's what they did were build these homes all days and lathers and plasters were doing this, you know, amazing plaster work all over the home, all over the homes, but it's impossible for a working class person to have those kind of homes uh, nowadays. And I think there is like a lot of alienation that results from, from all of that. And that getting back to my political argument is that the left has never done a good job of providing a narrative for that. Whereas the right has invested since at least Rush Limbaugh in creating a narrative about what that alienation is, right? It's not a material alienation. It's not the economic system that's doing to you it to you. It's these kind of racial things and these culture war things that are taking that feeling away from you. It's that you can't yeah. pray in your school. It's not that you remember having a certain degree of freedom and a certain degree of like solidarity amongst your community. It's that you were able to pray in the classroom, right? Or something like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, here's a few things I think about. In rural uh, North Carolina, not far from where we're, we are right now, there's a group, it's like half hippies, half serious country old timers mm. that fix their own roads. Yeah. So they'll, once a month, they'll go out and you know fix potholes in their mm-hmm. community and i think that's a really awesome thing yeah i mean it gives them a feeling of connection uh it involves communal work outside of the freaking nuclear family where everyone is so trapped 24 7. Mm-hmm. now uh imagine all parts of your life being done that way yeah. taking care of the poor uh taking care of the hungry um you know and the right has this fantasy of that kind of thing happening through the right fucking church which you know has a way of segregating the races effectively, which is what they want. Um, but I think they're right for fantasizing about that. Uh-huh. I mean, the state does sort of disempower normal folks from making these communal bonds. Yeah. And I hate to say that because right now the state is the only thing that's keeping us from complete fascism, right. um, which is kind of ironic. But uh, you know, the corporate uh, control over our lives, the only thing that's strong enough to stop that is the state. However, if you're a Southerner, all that meaning and community is felt as a lack. Yeah. Well, I think I've been harping on, well, throughout the last few years, but just this week I was saying not enough uh, people who are into Marx read Gramsci, and I don't know if you're a big Gramsci reader, but that's what, that's what he was trying to talk about in Italy in the 20s and 30s, like this divide between rural and urban, and it wasn't that, I think people make a mistake and think that the left is really dedicated to the state, like we really just love the state. But I think in America, we understand the role the federal government played in the South, which was running an apartheid state, right? Yeah. So, and it had to have federal interference. But the, you know, Gramsci says, uh, you know, that the state plays a role in kind of keeping these capitalist systems going through, through kind of uh, cultural means and other means, through means of the state, 
of, of extending that, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? If people can do their own things uh, as part of like solidarity movements or as part of just their community, then those things, is, that's a, that, that way, not only relieves alienation, but it's a very real way to achieve goals. Yeah, I, I sympathize with them. And then I get creeped out by them when I, you know, when they go off on some kind of racial purity thing or, or some kind of weird thing. So it, it, it's not resolved in my own head, except that looking at Southerners, I can see, you know, it's just like you drive 20 minutes to get to the Walmart and then that's an uplifting experience. And then <laughs> you drive back and that's the extent of your, of the time, you know, and maybe you go to church um, or you hang out at a gas station and that's it. I mean, that's, that's, you know, outside of the nuclear family, that's your life. Uh, you know, so well. How is that? So this is what I'm curious about. So I have never lived in the North, but I didn't. I didn't ever think about this divide between North and South. I think until I can remember the first time I heard of the South as a thing. I can still remember that. I remember I was watching the Today Show, or something maybe junior high, maybe high school, and they were in like Memphis, and there's like a paddle wheeler going down the Mississippi River, and the anchor was really excited, saying, "This is the first time I've been in the South." I'm like, I don't know what does that mean. Like I. I've been lots of places. I never thought that I was crossing a border. You know what I yeah. mean? I'd never thought of it that way. So I'm curious about this. So what is it? So you're from near Philadelphia. Yeah, suburbs. What is, what's, is there anything I could point to and say, this is different? Like, I don't know what that is. Yeah, first thing that comes to mind is the whole politeness thing. And it took me a long time to realize just how bullshit all the Southern politeness was and how much it masked deeply violent, aggressive tendencies. and I think there's an exception to this, but keep going. And the Southern, Southern people's inability to negotiate those tendencies. <laughs> but in the North, uh, people don't give a shit. And it's a great relief once you could see it that way. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, if you ask someone for directions, which is like the classic thing, they'll give them to you in the North. No one's, you know, that right. kind of cliche of, hey, right. f- fuck off, right. Southerner. That's bullshit. That's just insecure Southern people coming up who right. are like, you know, someone got their order wrong at the right. Cracker Barrel in Times Square. And <laughs> Eli they, Manning's Cracker Barrel. Right, right. And they got all pissed off. No, people are just as nice that way. But there's a stronger sense of boundaries that people have just in general, just like they do in just about any urban area. I mean, you go to Paris, you go to Tokyo, you go to just about anywhere. I imagine it's, you know, you just can't have boundaryless lives in mm-hmm. places like that. Maybe Tokyo's different. I don't know. No, Tokyo's bad. But that, in a way, that's very freeing. Um, because you don't have to do that fake, polite thing, and I think it's fake. I mean, you could, you can differ. With I disagree people. about what I disagree. I think you're right a lot of places, but I live in New Orleans now. And one thing I always say about New Orleans is like, I when the person at the register at my local uh, grocery store says, "How are you doing today?" They they are interested. Now, they don't care. I mean, they're not going to come to my house and make sure everything's better, but they're interested in my response, and I will end up talking to them for a few minutes about like how things are going. I really feel like that's a different thing. Uh, in, in the city of New Orleans. New Orleans is different. Yeah. New Orleans is different. I mean, that's a whole, total exception. I'm talking about your rural, you know, old, and, you know, it's like, in my mind, I'm just picturing people who are super polite, super mm-hmm. nice. Um, There's a lot of, like, the, like kind of like a, uh, not PTA meeting, like junior league kind of thing, where it's like, you know, hey, how you doing? But in the background, everyone's kind of a social climber, like right, waiting right. to snatch the other person down. I mean, you, you can see it really clearly with racial stuff in the South. Yeah, that's true. Like, um, a well-established, wealthier-than-me black man mm-hmm. will be overly nice to me mm-hmm. because he thinks that if he doesn't, mm-hmm. who knows what will happen. Right. And it's sad and pathetic. Uh, you know, it doesn't feel like a good situation. Um, 
And you know, I also see white people being super polite to black people mm-hmm. as a way of being like, well, if you do something wrong to me, I'll you you know I'll have no blame. Right, it right. all seems like very manipulative and coded, and it's all coded. Um, yeah. Um, well, that's one of the you were you were kind of talking about racism earlier. That's one of the things that really frustrates me about a lot. Well, this probably isn't just Southerners, but a lot of people like I grew up with who pride themselves on not being racist, but all they mean by that is that I'm polite to black people. Right. Exactly. And that's exactly. All, that's all that they mean. That's the extent yes. of it. Was your pool open to black people when you were a kid in 1980? No. Right. Did you ever think about that? No. Right. But I'm polite, you right, know. Right. Um, the, you know, when they're bagging my groceries, I'm polite. Right. But yeah. And now what we're seeing is that anytime actual change is proposed, mm-hmm. real change, the South goes batshit crazy. Yeah, and it's not even just that people start becoming impolite. Is that the whole mask is taken off and it's like homicidal? Yeah, or absolutely. genocidal. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, they would rather extinguish a race than suffer the tiniest bit of quality of life uh, diminishing, or you know, less—not even quality of life, but any possible threat to their status just drives them crazy. Yeah, and it's really weird to watch. It's weird to watch it happen from the inside. I guess I feel like because I often uh, kind of jokingly say I'm an undercover white person because I find that other white people will say horrible homicidal things to me and not think that I'm going to like uh, tell people that or like say this yeah. was said yeah. but I mean it's insane it's insane what you see and people don't I don't think they even think of it in those terms I don't know how they think of it but I think they think there's a natural order to things and that they're very invested in not having that natural order upset my grandma was deeply racist I mean n-word racist mm-hmm. and she was Jewish and grew up in Baltimore. Is mm-hmm. that the South or not? That's a hard one because Baltimore was like the leading slave trading right. port. And Baltimore is a, a strange case, I think. Yeah. But, yeah. but she was profoundly racist. And she would always go on to us about, you have to marry a Jewish person. Mm-hmm. You have to marry a Jewish person. And for a long time, I thought, well, that's just racist grandma. Mm-hmm. And I still think she was a vicious racist. I see it a little differently in that even though I think that's hardly racist, I understand that what she was saying is your the value that you have is not just to you and your family it's Uh to your community Uh and she could only understand community in racial terms and ethnic terms that's Um, very much a product of that time and place right yeah absolutely that's not an excuse but that just is yes that's what people thought yes and so her saying you have to marry a jewish person meant you have to belong to this community Uh in a way she you know you could read it as like your your life extends beyond the nuclear family which I'm obsessed with these days, and uh, it belongs to something greater. Mm-hmm. And that greater thing is not the United States of America, it's just some Jewish community, because she didn't trust the United States of America. Right. Um, why not? Yeah, <laughs> uh, why not's a good question. I think it's because, even though they liked it, and they were patriotic more so than I am, they had, a, yeah, they, they had an old world distrust of otherners, others. And others is a good term, though. Others. Um, yeah. So I, I understand it's not just... She didn't think that, you know, Christian people were necessarily dumber or this. Actually, she did. But uh, <laughs> it wasn't like some co- sort of biological argument she had. It was this weird communal argument. Now, we can... Yeah, as a species, we're either going to f- get past that right. or it's all going to be apartheid states right. all over the world. Pick your... Ch- you know, I'm not ready to move to Israel where, right. you know, 
if you're not Jewish, you're punished as a second-class citizen. Fuck that. Yeah. You know, I've made my choice. I do not want to live in that. Right. I don't think most people want to live in that. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but we're at a stage now where it's pick one or the other. Right. Yeah, it's weird. And we, we're talking kind of about how that, how that kind of uh, interrupts other um, kind of Southern tendencies towards solidarity and stuff. Because, like, you know, I know where I'm from in Florida, at least hearing my grandmother describe it, if she was growing up in the 20s and 30s, it was very much communal. It was very much kind of solidarity. She talks about making it through the Depression because everyone fished and everyone had a garden, and so the Depression didn't hit them nearly as hard, and they all were working together. And you can see, I've looked at the voting records. They're voting like FDR, New Deal, like all the way through until you have like the integration crisis, and then all the politics go right wing. And you can pinpoint that, and you, I don't think there's any real argument you can make that it was... Uh, some there were maybe maybe they were making better uh, economic uh, arguments there. It's not. It's a racial something racial happens, and so the racial aspect of it like destroys like all of well it destroys all of like southern culture, but all the southern political leanings as well because you can't if that solidarity involves racial solidarity, it's not going to happen. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy, and you know there's there's an old saying which I've always made sense of this. I don't think the North is better. Maybe you know this one. It's like. In the South, they, meaning the white folks, uh, don't care how close close yeah. you are. They just don't want you to get too big. Mm-hmm. In the North, they don't care how big you are. They just right. don't want you to get too close. I think it's made a lot of sense out of my experience. I've seen a lot of racism up North. It's it's literally just as bad as the South, right. just a different variety. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, I had a history professor who would make that argument. You know, you can even look like Strom Thurmond, who's having an affair with this African-American housekeeper and a daughter with her, and still a segregationist, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's all, yeah. it's pathological. Well, let me ask you this. So, you're, you're, you're from uh, Pennsylvania, all this stuff, so what made you interested in Southern culture in the first place? How did that happen? Yeah, I think I was, inter- I mean, I think I was interested in, <laughs> I mean, there's so many Jews who have made this move that it's mm-hmm. sort of a cliche. I mean, I'm like... I'm number 568 to take the ticket down mm. south and play the banjo. I mean, every all these bluegrass players, yeah. you know, half of them are Jewish. So what is it? Um, I still haven't quite figured it out. It was that way in the old world, too. For me personally, I, I just needed to get away from the schlockiness mm-hmm. of the north. What I saw, you know, as like a very ethnic situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I remember driving, just to make it clear, I was driving in a road in Philadelphia, and I looked over... And there was just like this huge overweight man in a decaying car mm-hmm. from like the 60s and his back seat was just full of newspapers and his tires were low on air. <laughs> just, and you go down south and everyone looks pretty good. I mean, they <laughs> used to. They used to yeah, you? I don't know where the hell I was. I was in Chapel Hill. This was yeah. before the Walmarts came. Um, yeah, the south is just as disgusting in their own way. Although, but, this is a complete aside. I'm going to let you finish, but I, there's just... We're, you know, now in near Asheville, and it's a very strange thing I have when I come up here. So uh, in Florida, uh, uh, there's a kind of like a pretty high level of general attractiveness amongst people. It's a, you're, it's a, you're near the beach, right? right? In New Orleans, there are all sorts of different people, but there's a very high rate of just beautiful people, men, women, right. whatever. And I'm up here in like this area of like App- Appalachia, and it's strange because it doesn't seem to be the frequency of beautiful people. But then every once in a while, you're like, oh, oh my lord, that person's like, it looks like they, uh, they're like out of some kind of like Norse mythology. Like, where did this person come from? And they'll be like a bachelor. It's a very strange dynamic. Yeah, it is of, strange. 
and I haven't figured it out yet. And it sounds, I've been trying to describe this to people for weeks and I don't think my version of it makes sense. I think what it was, I saw pre-industrial culture as, you know, I was a hippie and I, I saw that in a classic old romantic way uh, as some sort of alternative mm-hmm. uh, that was worth investigating. And you can't investigate it in the suburbs of Philadelphia. You can't? No, you can buy, you can buy some records. And then after a while, you know, you have to look elsewhere. See, I think that's what I don't get. I've never lived up north, so I think that's the part I'm kind of missing out on. I mean, the beauty of it is that it's completely ahistorical. You can do whatever the fuck you want. No one cares. You know what I mean? And that's why you get Lou Reed right. or something like that. Um, uh, the Down here, it's, you know, it, it's totally different that way. People do care what you do. Like, I find myself having conversations with southern people where I'm talking about something that interests me. And they're actually interested. Right. You know what I mean? Where in the North, people would just be like, who cares? Like, <laughs> what you're saying has no bearing on my life. I could care less. Um, it's pro and con. And I've, it's been so long since I've been down here, I don't even really, you know. You've made the switch? I've made the switch mentally, which is scary. But, yeah. Uh, I mean, up there, it's, it's just uh, neoliberalist culture has won. Yeah. And I think a lot of the debates that we're having now politically were played out in the art world 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and that all took place in the North in those kind of circles. I have no idea about any of that. So. I mean, like the gender versus class, I okay. mean, uh, diversity versus class, um, and uh, what is virtue, what isn't virtue, what kind of world do we want to build? That's a whole other topic. Um, yeah. And the South is more innocent, I mean, when it comes to that stuff. I don't know what to say. It's... All right. Well, so let's, um, I'm going to uh, do the big subject change here. So let's talk about music for a little bit. All right. You, you are, are very interested in lots of Southern music. Yeah, but I stopped playing it. You stopped playing? I stopped playing Southern music. I don't really? play klezmer. Did you make uh, like a conscious choice to stop playing Southern I music? I kind of did. I mean, first, I married a Southerner yeah. uh, who sang in her church. Yeah. And I heard her sing with people, and I realized... I'll never do that. I mean, it's like... It's, well, you're, you're married to a very good singer, so it's not... Yeah, but I've, I've also seen... I've gotten... I was good enough at Southern Music to be close to people who were really good. And they have a... You know, the cultural value of a lot of that music, pre-industrial and industrial, is communal power. Uh-huh. Bill Monroe was strong. His playing was strong. Uh, he wanted to knock you out with that mandolin. Southern vocal harmonies are powerful. Uh-huh. What they're not is individual... Uh-huh. Subtle, they're not into uh, humor <laughs> at all. Uh, and I, I used to go to these fiddle conventions, and I was like, "Well, these, this fiddle tune is fun, but what, can we like improvise on it, or can we like uh-huh. shtick it up a little bit?" And people looked at me like, "No, it's not what we do." <laughs> uh, and then I started playing Jewish music, and it doesn't have that power thing. What it has is the quirky, the weird, uh-huh. the the crookedness, uh, the desire to improvise, all, do all of that. And so it sort of, it wasn't a self-conscious decision, but I realized, oh, some of my natural tendencies fit better with uh-huh. this music, and they make more sense. That makes sense. So this area that we're in now, so we're in Mars Hill, North Carolina, is there, does this have any link to musical history? Uh, Asheville, this whole area? I mean, Asheville does, sure. There was a lot of recording sessions that happened in Asheville that were very important. Um, uh, Jimmy Rogers was up here. There was a bunch of other uh, very important fiddlers. Um, yeah, I mean, Asheville was, was quite the toddling town back then. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it was a crossroads, and any crossroads had people that were interested in coming down and recording. Yeah, I know where we used to be up uh, near Emory, Virginia, was like the, that was one of the epicenters, right? Like yeah, that was like the, the Carter family yeah. kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and, and people are examining that history and rewriting it now all the time, because the mountains is the cliche of, of where people are playing fiddle mm -hmm. music and stuff. Um, because Appalachia has that sort of hold on, on the imagination of folks, and, and folks now and then, and that's where a lot of field recorders folks went down. But people are now saying, well, a lot more of it happened down in the Piedmont, like Chapel oh, really? Hill. Yeah, a lot, more, a lot of that happened down there too. Um, and even the old time music is all, you know, nothing's pure, even that was people playing old time music up in the mountains, listening to stuff on the radio that mm -hmm. was recorded in New York City. So they're playing <laughs> Tin Pan Alley songs. Right. You know, it's hopelessly all syncretic and mixed up. Um, but for sure, uh, Appalachia, you know, had really interesting, unique fiddle traditions and banjo traditions that worked, you know, fat. Well, one of the things that was amazing about them was that white folks stole that stuff from black folks mm -hmm. and created something that was a third thing, which is really interesting in its own right. Including like the instruments? like the Oh, banjo. the banjo is... And, you know, it's technically an African-American instrument, mm -hmm. but we've now found antecedents in Africa that are really close. Uh -huh. um, uh, you know, how white people play it is a little bit different than how black folks may have originally played it, but the essential syncopations, the essential uh -huh. quirkiness, the dissonant tones, um, a lot of that now comes straight from African music. When did the African-American version of that have any distinct musical traditions that went anywhere like banjo and well it was famously dropped pretty quickly by African Americans hmm. I mean uh, you know the the, the minstrel show mm -hmm. you know pretty much killed it um, the, I know when you see a lot of the old original jazz band photographs they have like a banjo player yes that will probably be a tenor banjo uh -huh. that's almost always a tenor banjo well um, not picked in the same way. And they had tenor banjos in the minstrel shows, too. Um, but even those tenor banjos in jazz faded out pretty quickly. Yeah, right? you don't Part see of it so was because amplification. Right. You didn't need that much in the rhythm section. Uh, I play tenor banjo uh -huh. uh, in the clever band. It's a beautiful instrument. I love it. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it took me a long time to figure this out because I also played Southern African-American music, which uh -huh. is painful. <laughs> for people to, to look at. I never played it out, but I would play it for fun. I love it. Um, but I can't even really play that much anymore because the, the history of the South has become imprinted in my consciousness in a way that I just can't even go there with it. It just all seems so sad. Uh, the alcoholic blues players that made incredible music, the, the degradation of their lives is now so apparent to me that uh, I, I'll listen to it, but I can't stay there too long. Right. Well, because you playing it is, you do feel dishonest playing it? Yeah. yeah I've always felt dishonest right. playing it, but I'll still play because it it's fun right, to play right. and it's beautiful. Um, but now it's it's just kind of, it gives me a, a bad feeling in my gut to play it too long. And, you know, I used to run into black folks in America who were good at guitar on their instruments, and I was like, well, what about blues? And they were never that interested. But, you know, just like a lot of Jewish folks aren't interested in klezmer, traditional right. Jewish music. They see it as like a debased form of their culture. Yeah. I never really understood that. I'm starting to see it in strange ways now. I mean, you can understand jazz a little bit 
as that. I mean, in the 20s and 30s, you have these incredible timbres in the music, grit and sliding notes and all of that. Really interesting. Sorry, so, like, uh, blues music has all these amazing sounds and textures and stuff, and it's gritty, and the voices are gritty. And then, like, ten years go by, five years go by, and everything's crystal clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, ja- the sound of jazz guitar just sounds so horrible to me, like modern jazz guitar. Really, like Wes Montgomery and that stuff, you know? Like? Uh, Wes Montgomery's tolerable because the amplification technology hadn't evolved to completely make the oh, sound... Okay. But I'm talking about like the, Talbot. you know, like, oh, the, like, like your six string basses and your... Oh, like I can't do Jocko. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, I'm a bass player and I still like, people say, oh, you need to listen to Jocko Pastorius. I'm like, he, I understand that he's amazing, but I don't want to listen to it. Like it doesn't interest me. And the guitar sounds like Muzak to me. Right, right. It's so clean and... Right. But I, it took me a long time to realize, but I think that cleanliness is a v- vision of the future. Uh-huh. Their music is trying not to hearken to the past. It's trying, you know, just to talk about the past as little as it has right. to to make it authentic and then to paint this vision of a future right um which is clean and classy and a clean classy future clean that we classy all want. future i think we should end on a clean classic future sounds good thank you phil you're welcome that's pretty professorial <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>